Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm wild again, beguiled again, a simpering, whimpering child again, bewitched, bothered and bewildered am I. Couldn't sleep and wouldn't sleep when love Hello, all theatre lovers, both out and proud and on the DL. Welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theatre's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The British Invasion, and it is covering shows that originated in the United Kingdom and then transferred across the pond to our Great White Way, some making a giant splash and some barely making a ripple. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is an alum of the pod, friend of the pod. You might know him from the Playwrights Horizons musical, An Unknown Soldier. Yes, that's the name. Uh, or you might know him from his own podcast, Actors on Process, but you definitely know him best for being on here almost two years ago, gang out about Mary Louise Parker. Uh, please welcome back to the pod, James Crichton. Ah. Wow. Wow. What a um, what a way to come back after her, her Tony win. Truly. Her second now. Her second, yeah. Which honestly, so when we, okay, this is the time that it's been, the time that Broadway and all of us have had. When you and I recorded, she was still in the sound inside. That's right. <laughs> she had not yet been nominated for the sound inside. That right. was almost two years ago. And she finally just won this weekend. It was December of 2019 when we did that. Yes, it oh, was. Oh my gosh. In person. Ah. Here we are on, on Zoom. So I hope the sound is, is good. It might but, be a uh, little quiet for some of our listeners, but because we're talking about a play today, I oh. think today's a little more um, ASMR. Than it okay, is. and I, I will lean in a little bit too if we lean if we in, James. Lean in, and at any point, if you want me to break into some RP or you know English, <laughs> we can we can we can do that too. Absolutely, unwrap some toffees and just get fun in there. Uh, right. I did so. I actually did message James the night of the Tonys because he posted something that was very in line with him, and I was like, thought of you when she won. Thought of you mm-hmm. the entire time she spoke, and the way she walked up the stairs, I was like. That is, if I ever do drag, that is how I want to enter every stage. Yeah, it's 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 everything I wanted for that for that <laughs> moment. You know, I, I yeah. truly was just like, wow, I would love a second win tonight. Like this would really be so thrilling. And I had read something earlier in the day that was just like, in a way, it's kind of awesome that Broadway is having this two-parter with Mary Louise because in a way we may have seen her be double nominated for yeah. how I learned to drive and the sound inside in which case maybe votes would have canceled each other out and then she wouldn't have won at all so I kind of was like I'm down for her winning for this amazing 
performance and the sound inside. So I was thrilled. Absolutely. There was, uh, there was no question she was going to get double nominated for those two, whether she was going to win for either was up in the air. Right. Now she's at, she could win twice in one year. Cause we're going to have another out. Tony's in June. Oh. I would pass out. I mean, if anyone can do it, it's Mary Louise. It may be her. Uh, I'll come back again then. Yes, absolutely. Well, we will, we will meet you at the hospital where I am almost certain you will be on death's door. Uh, exactly. But we're no longer talking about Miss Mary Louise Parker. Right. It's over. T- t- no, it's done. Garbage, flop, trash. Moving on. Old news. Today, especially because when this episode comes out, it will have been a month since she won. And everyone's like, I don't care anymore. But James, what are we talking about today? So we are talking about a play called The History Boys, which is a play by Alan Bennett mm-hmm. that you have watched multiple times, I believe you said, uh, the stage production and have read where stage I have production only- I watched stage production I watched live once and a few of the times on the boot and a few boot. times at the at and the I have read the play several times and seen the film twice. So mm-hmm. we're coming at it from two unique angles. And I'm really actually excited to talk about some of the overlaps and differences and yada, yada. Absolutely. Did you get a chance to watch some of the boot before today? Yes. Okay. And I, I mean, we could jump right in. I have. Well, so we clearly James has not listened to a single episode of the breakdown since it's overhaul. Cause he doesn't know the structure that we do here. It's Does he chickies? It's been a minute. It's been it's a minute. It's been a minute. So let's get into this show. I'm going to go a little bit about the history of the History Boys, how we got set play, and then we'll go into the show itself. So as you mentioned, History Boys is by Alan Bennett, who is a British playwright. He is extremely well-known in the West End, almost entirely not unknown here. Uh, the History Boys, I think, was only the second play he's ever written that made it to Broadway. Uh, but whereas he has had like over a dozen plays on the West End, one of the most famous ones was the Madness of King, uh, uh, the Madness of George the Third, which was adapted into the movie The Madness of King George, uh, for which he was nominated for an Oscar for adapting his screenplay. Uh, Bennett graduated with a first degree in history from Exeter College at Oxford University. All of this is important. Uh, he stayed there for most of his twenties as a lecturer on medieval history, and then he realized, "I'm not much of an academic. I think I'm going to go into the arts," and so just sort of fell into creating this review with Dudley Moore, Jonathan Miller, and Peter Cook called Beyond the Fringe that premiered at the Edinburgh Festival in 1960, was a huge sensation, transferred to the West End, came to Broadway. It made all of their careers. They went off to become, you know, super huge in all their fields. They won a special Tony Award uh, jointly with it. Uh, As I mentioned, Ben continued on as a writer. Uh, He wrote for TV. He wrote for stage. Madness of George III is one of his biggest successes, uh, which was performed at the National. He first met collaborator Nicholas Heitner, who was very important for this, when they came together to adapt the book The Wind in the Willows for the stage at the National. It was going to be their Christmas show, which is a running trend with the National. They tend to do these big, elaborate, epic plays for children during Christmas, and then they become huge hits. So, you know, that's how we got War Horse. That's how we got Corum Boy. That's how we got This Wind in the Willows, which was a huge, huge success. And they sort of continued working together, Heitner and Bennett, since then. They did Madness of George III together, Lady in the Van. Heitner mentions in his book, Balancing Acts, which I don't know if you've read, but it's his like memoir slash, not tell all, but like he talks about his time directing in the National, being artistic director at the National. And he said when he first met 
Bennett, Bennett was like, oh, I'm writing these scenes for Wind in the Willows and I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to figure out like way, uh, ways to write it so that way it's easier for you to stage. And Heitner said, if you can imagine it, I will stage it. He's like, just write what you want. And he said, that's how we've worked ever since. And in 2003, flash forward through the 90s, Heitner has won his Tony for Carousel as well he should have. He does Sweet Smell of Success and Broadway said no. He did Center Stage and everyone said yes. Yes. Also, Sweet Smell of Success is on my piano right now. I don't know. If- look, look at that. Good for you for being able to play it. Are you like secretly a really good pianist, James? Did I not know this? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'll never say like, yeah, I'm a great pianist, but like there are, um, I can, there are certain musical theater things that I, I it's what I do. So yeah. Well, but I'm not like a Broadway pianist or music director, but I can sit at the piano and we'll get through it together. And I'm pretty good with rep and coaching and blah, blah, blah. So, and you could probably play scripts in this play now, now that we know this. Yes. Yeah. You play scripts. I play Posner. I'm Jewish after all. Would love. Let's make it happen, bitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and Spencer can play a role, right? Let's get, let's get all the all the breakdown guests that know each yeah, other and we'll all just do the history boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about Suits Small Success anymore. Point is, Bennett sends Heitner a manuscript that's called Hector's Boys. And it's basic, it's inspired by Bennett's time in it's not primary school at this point. How does how does it work in England with the education system? It's see this this is where I'm certainly no expert on this, but this is where it starts to become a little bit hazy for me too. I was watching the documentary that they talk about and making the filming of it. And there's like a secondary school and there's a prime, I I get confused too. So I'm no help. I think, I think it's actually called college when it's the last two years and then you go to uni, but uni has colleges in the university. So it's all craziness, but so let's just call it based off of Bennett's last couple of years before going off to university. And so he sends the manuscript to Heitner and Heitner's like, um, this is pretty esoteric and pretty dense. And I don't know, this needs to have a bit more focus, but I guess, yeah, sure. We'll we'll put this on. We'll give it like a two month run at the national next year. And in that year, uh, he and Bennett work on the script a bit more. And the first thing he says is, um, so I spoke to the entire uh, voting committee at the uh, planning committee at the national and we agreed to do it, but you have to change the name. And like, here are five options we gave you. And one of them was History Boys. And Bennett was like, sure, I'll call it the History Boys. So Bennett said that he was inspired to write the play because he was listening to Heitner on a radio program called Private Passions. And Nicholas Heitner chose on the program for them to play the song Bewitched. (laughs) And Bennett had never heard the song in full before, only sort of like snippets. And he was really taken with the lyrics. And he was then triggered by a story that Nicholas Heitner had told him where Heitner said when he was in uh, primary school, he was in the boys choir and Alan Bennett imagined a small Jewish gay Nicholas Heitner singing to a boy in the choir. And then he also was thought of the character of who would soon be Posner singing Bewitched to another boy who would be Dakin. And the two sort of combined. And he's like, great, I have a play here. They do a reading of the second draft after Heitner's like, uh, you only two of the boys are defined. You need to find the other boys. And like, how does the character feel about this and that? And they do a reading with like half the cast of his dark materials, which was being done at the national at the time, which included Russell Tovey, Samuel Barnett, Dominic Cooper, Jamie Parker. And some of the actors were playing different roles in what they eventually would play. 
in the show, specifically because Parker, after the reading, was like, you know, I can play piano. And they're like, oh, great. You were playing Rudge. You're now playing scripts. Uh, the reading goes extremely well. Heitner's like, oh, shit, this play's actually really good. Maybe two months was too short. And he's like, yeah, we'll give it three months. Mm. Bennett apparently was obsessed with the idea of Posner. And y'all will know who Posner is in just a second if you don't know the play super well. The character of Posner, he was really obsessed with him having an unbroken voice. And so he really wanted uh, an actor with uh, who hadn't really gone through puberty yet. And Nicholas Heitner's like, these characters are supposed to be 17. We're not going to find someone whose voice broke isn't broken yet. And Bennett's like, my voice didn't break till I was 17. And he's like, you're an anomaly that they know most of them don't exist. <laughs> no Alan. Yeah. Yeah. Heitner's like, we'd have to cast a 12 year old boy in this show. And we have like 25 year old actors playing the history boys. This isn't going to work. And Alan's like, we'll make it work. It's fine. So basically Nicholas, after the reading, Nicholas Heitner tells his staff, he's like, tell Samuel Burnett not to take any jobs this year. He's going to be in the play. I'll, I'll figure it out. So they, what they do is they start work on casting the rest of the boys and Heitner's like, we're going to bring in the 12 year old at the end, which is um, not a sentence. One should ever really say it that often bring We'll bring out the 12 year olds in the end. Right. Um, but in this case, it make, makes sense. He's like, we'll, we'll get to the you know younger guys later. And Bennett says, fine. They, they figure out who they want from the reading, which are the four men I mentioned, as well as Richard Griffiths, Francis de la Tour. And from the auditions, they cast James Corden and America has never forgiven them since, uh, as well as two other characters. And by the time they get to the end of the audition process, uh, Alan Bennett's like, well, what about Posner? And Heitner's like, oh, sorry, we ran out of time. I guess we're gonna have to cast Samuel Barnett. Sorry about it. And it took until the show actually opened for Alan Bennett to be like, that was the right decision. Like all throughout rehearsals, Alan Bennett kind of which was like, not right, not right at all. I didn't yeah. know any of this. This is because I do my research. Damn. Yeah. I, I am. Listen, James, I may not know what time it is. I may not show up on time for my recordings, but I do do my research. Damn. Yeah. For anyone who's wondering what that was about, I did not realize that our recording time was when it was. I left James sitting there in the dark, crying all alone for five hours and I finally showed sobbing. up sobbing 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 the fact that he's even speaking to me right now just shows what a lovely person he is <laughs> so they go into rehearsal and every day in rehearsal basically they do two things uh Bennett gives a lesson on history and literature and Heiner sort of gives lessons on film and theater and then they would sort of go into actual uh, reading of the text, staging the text, which is something that the National is really famous for. Is like these really long rehearsal periods. Like you will rehearse a play or a musical at the National for like two to three months. And then you will tech it really quickly. You will have like four previews and then you open. Wow. Yeah, which I honestly prefer because they're sort of like, you know, live the text, get, get all the kinks out that you want to get out. And then it's just about having a handful of performances to adjust accordingly with an audience. And then you're open. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a it's a it's a nice process, but it allows them a lot of time as they rehearse, which is why they're able to start every rehearsal with those history lessons, literature lessons, theater lessons. Uh, they open in May of 2004 at the Littleton stage, and it is like 
super huge from the word go from the very first preview onwards audiences are into it they love it they're laughing they're crying uh it sells out immediately they extend it throughout the rest of the year they then have to close it and they bring it back the following year they win the olivier for best play as well as two others i think for direction and actor for richard griffiths uh they bring as i said they bring it back they then do an international tour where they play in Hong Kong and Australia. They film a movie version of it. The original cast comes back to close out the return run at the National before immediately going to Broadway, where they go to the Broadhurst Theater. They have a week and a half of previews, which is about correct since they've done it so many times. Like, what else was going to get changed? And they open on April 23rd, 2006. What happens after the fact, we'll get to. But until then, James, what is the History Boys about? Oh, well, I guess you could say that, I mean, there's so many things that come to mind, but the History Boys is basically about preparing and what is the right or wrong or what is the best approach to how to prepare these young people who are going off and the headmaster of the school would like them to go to the best. They would like them to go to what is it, Oxford or Cambridge. Cambridge. And that is, they're shooting for the best. They want to prepare them and train them in the best way possible. And the play follows them through their history classes and then general studies. Mm -hmm. And then some uh, other teacher is brought in which I'm sure we'll dun 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 lead into in a moment, but it basically sort of grapples with, do we allow these young people to learn a sense generally with art and literature and poetry and music, or do we train them to be test takers or do we train them to know how to get ahead in all of these ways? What is, and even though this play takes place in the eighties, it, it does sort of foreshadow, I guess you could even say like the American style of, you know, growing up for me, everything was, well, prepare yeah. for the SAT, prepare for the New York State Regents exam, prepare for this, well, prepare for that. Well, so you're going into themes, which I love, but give a little more specific for people who don't know what the play is. It's mm-hmm. 80s, it's 80s England, mm-hmm. uh, boys in their last year of school before they go off to university. University. And you mentioned the headmaster. He wants them to get into the top universities. And they have Hector, who's their main teacher, mm-hmm. general studies. Uh, there is one thing about Hector, though, that is kind of important. <laughs> In addition to being a fascinating teacher. They are all totally kind of obsessed with. Yeah. Um, he does ride a bike to school and not a little um bicycle he rides a big old motorcycle big old motorcycle with a helmet and gear and all of it and he prefers if one of his students will ride on the back after school and what happens sometimes always Mm -hmm. on the bike is that one hand is on the I guess you would call it the steering shift yeah the the handle handlebar yeah the other hand is behind and he gropes inappropriately the students Hector is a married man at home Mm -hmm. to a wife Mm -hmm. but everybody sort of not so secretly secretly knows 
that this is something that Hector does with the young men and it's an unspoken just sort of yes and what's interesting about the play and the characters is so it was very important that they ca- that Hector not be seen as a predator. Uh, that is how Bennett wanted to uh, have it performed. That's how they wanted it staged. So Richard Griffiths, for anyone who doesn't know that name, first of all, he is he is deceased. So R.I.P. But he is the actor who played Uncle Vernon in all the Harry Potter movies. He is a heavier actor. He is an older actor. And the way he played Hector was very... Um, uh, airy and like light-footed and just and very just sort of passionate about the art of learning and teaching in general and the young men in the class of whom he fondles when they talk about it with each other it's sort of matter of fact and no one talks about it as like a traumatic emotional thing emotional thing yeah it's yeah not- because they also, I mean, they say he doesn't even try to, it's the character of Dakin, I think, the the you know most sexual and consider the handsomest of the lot. He says, like, I'd have more respect for him if he actually tried to do something. He goes, he mostly just, like, puts his hand, like, rests his hand there and feels it and then moves away. He's like, he doesn't, like, try to, like, do more than that. And he's like, I would have more respect for him if he did. Um, which is such a weird mentality. But as you said, like, they do love him as a teacher and they admire him and there's something there's like a weird point of pride for some of them because he doesn't do it to all of them because he doesn't allow all of them on the bike there are only some that he does and the ones that don't get asked on the bike even though they know what he does they get upset when he doesn't invite them yeah it's it's like a i don't want one of the ones who's not invited happens to be one of the out gay ones yeah, the only out gay one. Yeah, right. Posner, Jew- Jewish Posner. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there are other characters as well. Obviously, there's the headmaster who, you know, the inciting incident is he wants all of the top form students to go to Cambridge or Oxford, and he doesn't trust that Richard Griffiths Hector is going to get them there because his teaching is less about what's going to get them in and more sort of, you know, all over the place kind of stuff. Picture kind of like, you know, if you're a fan of one of my favorite movies, like Dead Poet Society, you know, very much Robin Williams, this sort of unconventional, let's stand on our desks and rip the pages out. And it's about being a world learner and building a better tomorrow as opposed to curating robots for tests. Yes, which is what the headmaster would like, which is why he brings in Irwin, who is a young scholar liar uh, and liar as well yes well he all he does is lie about where he went to school he doesn't Mm -hmm. lie about what degree he got and maybe he's lying about himself to himself and his utmost desires there you go there we go you hit on it i uh i always do i'm i'm insightful james i don't know if anyone's told you this i'm very insightful i'm nuanced and smart you hit the nail on that bam so yeah, Erwin kind of comes in. And so it's it's so weird. It's kind of like the inverse, though, of Dead Poet Society, because Dead Poet Society is, you know, here's a school where it's everything's taught in a very strict way. And Robin Williams comes in and messes everything up. And like in History Boys, you have Hector, who is Robin Williams and messes everything up. And then Erwin's the one who comes in. He's like, here's a structured way to learn. And everyone's like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. 
Yeah. Uh, but it, what's interesting about Erwin is that he is very clever and he's very insightful. He's just, he's teaching these boys how to think outside the box to be robots. Like he's, he's not at teaching them how to like think differently to be great learners, to do good in the world. He's like teaching them how to think differently so they can stand out from the rest of the applicants and get into these schools, which to his credit, that is why he was brought there. It's not like necessarily how he thinks, or maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Definitely yeah. something like for the actor, I guess, playing it, but yeah, he's the person who is, you know, the prompt is we're going to write about like, um, you know, World War One or something. I forget exactly the example from the play. And it's like, so what are we going to write about? And then everybody says like the exact four bullet pointed things that you would yeah. learn from your history class or from Francis de la Torre's history class. And then mm -hmm. he's like, no, 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 no. Like you want to almost think the opposite and spin it. He's just trying to craft. Yeah. I think he says something along the lines of like, a question has two doors, a front and a back. You want to try to find a way from the, in from the sideways or something like that. Mm-hmm. You want to find a different angle, which again, that is sort of how it's become now. It's, you know, yeah, everyone has this take, find something new to say. And, you know, the problem is, is especially with the internet now, when 9 million people have voices, that's 9 million angles. And you might come to an angle on your own, but still like you find that like 500,000 other people said the same thing online. How is, how are you going to stand out now? Right. So it's, it's tricky. And that's sort of where Hector is at. He's like, well, why not just be true to your own voice? That will stand out just as much. And there's a constant back and forth in the show about yeah, that. Yeah. And I think Bennett himself is probably more in line with Hector's way of thinking uh, while acknowledging that it's the Irwin mentality that has found success down the road. Uh, what I will share, because yes. I do some preparation too, is... Um, that in this documentary that I was watching, Alan Bennett said that he never had a teacher like a Hector. He had a teacher more in line. What is her name? Mrs. Lansford, uh, Francis de la Torre's character. Um, it is. Um, I have the character. It's a uh, Mrs. Lintot. Great. That. Yeah. Um, he had a teacher that was more in line with who she was and how she taught. And he always kind of wanted a teacher like Hector, which is why he wrote mm. that part it sort of came out of it and it came out of so many people lamenting that that style of teaching is is frowned upon in contemporary school that Hector's way of teaching is yes yeah well because now it's become well what's necessary what's the most important information what is just give me what I need to know a glimpse give me like what I the basics yeah and what I like about so okay so Hector's way of teaching. He does random quotes. He will quote poetry, literature, and then will, you know, test the students on what he's quoting. They have a whole class where they must speak in French and mm. not only speak in French, but they have to play out an improv scene in French of their choosing. And Dakin, being the fuckboy that he is, chooses a brothel. And Posner is the madam and Tim's is the prostitute. And they go pretty, I mean, they go far. Like Dakin takes off his pants and is like ready for Tim's to rock his world. And they have a game where they're always trying to stump Hector to, you know, they'll, they will find some, what they think is some obscure movie and they will play out a scene from it as, you know, Scripps plays the piano. 
and then try to see if Hector can guess it from the little bit of dialogue they do. They do now Voyager and say like the most famous line. And they're like, can you guess? It's got, like, it's, yes. Yeah. It's literally saying like fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy night. Do you know the movie? <laughs> yes. It's all about Eve. You uncultured fuck. Like, yeah. Or, or um, I don't know. Saying like who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Know the musical. Hamilton. Yeah. So it's very, yeah. It's so, those scenes are so good in the movie too, though. I mean, it's just the cast is so good and it is a he's wonderful genius. Cast. But anyway, back to what you're yeah. saying. But um, but yeah, so like you you see these scenes, and it's important in uh the play that they're all, I believe, yeah, they're all act one, the the French scene, the quotations, because it's the end of act one when Hector is confronted with uh by the headmaster that the headmaster's wife has seen Hector fondling one of the boys on his motorcycle and that he will be forced to uh, retire by the end of the semester. And on top of, and if that wasn't like indignity enough to Hector, he then also now has to start sharing some of his classes with Erwin because now the school is finding that Hector's classes are um, more and more of a waste of time. And Irwin's are much, have much more precedent and therefore, uh, and not president's not the right word, more importance, I suppose. Take precedent is the mm-hmm. is what it, the term I meant to say. And unfortunately, the bootleg cuts out before this scene happens, but there's a glorious scene between Hector and Posner where they have sort of a private lesson. And the first thing that Hector says is, what have we learned this week? Um, and that old line already has like killed me because teachers don't, a lot of teachers don't ask that, you know, parents don't always ask that friends are like, what have we learned this week? Especially when you are a student, it's like, here's the thing you're learning today. Here's your structure. Here's your curriculum. Um, and so he starts with that. And then Posner recites a poem that he's learned. It's Hodge the drummer boy, which I was never familiar with before the play and not much after. Nope. And, you know, they discuss it and it's very, it's not even like teacher and student. It's two people almost like sitting over a cup of coffee discussing literature. And he makes his points, Hector, and asks, you know, Posner, his point of view. The main thing he says that still sticks with me is like, the point is that he had, that this little drummer boy has a name. This is World War One, where, you know, casualties of war were just sort of in the you know, part of a statistic, they were numbered and they were put in unmarked graves. And now they are given names, which is why this poem is so important. And then he says to him, I'm taking out my copy of the history boys. Hector says the best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things. Actually, let me go back. Let me go back into my English accent. <clears throat> mm. The best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things, which you had thought special and particular to you. Now here it is, set down by someone else, a person you have never met, someone who even is long dead. And it is as if a hand has come out and taken yours. That fucks me up every time. And just to watch Richard Griffiths deliver it, you know, it Mm -hmm. happens a bit slower like in the film and just the way that it almost feels like his his arm as he demonstrates sort of like what he's doing it all happens in just this time really feels like it stops in this scene it's such an important thing and you know I actually wanted to just ask you 
do you feel like, you know, it's very clear that Posner comes, you know, is open about his sexuality with Irwin. And this is something that I was just wondering about. Do you think that they all just assume that Irwin is gay? I think it's pretty. Yeah, I think they all clock it. They pretty sure can figure it out. Well, especially because Posner's Posner's definitely the one who's figured it out first. Because and then of the eyes. Yes. And this is not something that the movie really touches on because in the play, they all speak to the audience. Rather, the, the, all the students speak to the audience. And then um, Mrs. Lynn right. Todd gets to speak to the audience in act two with a great line. She's like, I have not hitherto uh, been given an inner voice. And it's always got, got a laugh. But uh, when Posner goes to Irwin to say, I think I might be homosexual and I'm in love with Dakin. I also love, he's like, well, have you spoken to Dakin about this? Yes, he doesn't. He says that makes sense. <laughs> Which, but it's so like, even that, like, that's the thing that, about this play that's so amazing is like, this is not an out character who's hiding in the shadows, who is afraid to speak up. Like he literally sings. He sings Bewitched to Dakin. To Dakin, like makes direct eye contact and is very vocal about wanting him and and wanting his attention and having a conversation with him. Yeah. Um, I just think it's really sweet. But the reason I asked you this is because like in this scene that you're talking about with Posner Mm -hmm. and and Hector, you know, they're sitting there and there's such tension between the two of them. And and Hector brings up these words. He says, unspoken, unconfined, unembraced. And there's just all of this unspokenness between them. They're not talking about sexuality or this or that but Posner goes so freely to talk about it with Irwin like the younger more conventionally attractive teacher Mm -hmm. who he assumes to be gay and I always just wonder about like the tension you know he's Posner is not allowed to ride on the motorcycle with him like there's so much unspoken between them and yet they have the most beautiful connection um, in this scene so I have a lot of thoughts. Surprise, surprise. Let me see if I, I want to see if I can sort them in a way that it makes sense. So when I discuss the inner monologue bit with the play, it's important because when Posner does go to Irwin, Irwin says, why did you come to me and not to Hector? Posner says, well, Hector would have given me a quote. I wanted advice. And in the play, I think it's scripts who speaks to the audience. He's like, it's because Posner was also kind of testing him because, and there's a joker Posner's like, I, I know that Irwin looks at Dakin because I never stop looking at Dakin and Irwin never our stops looking meet. at Dakin and our eyes meet looking at Dakin. Yeah. And he's like, no one else notices this, but me. And so it, th- it was sort of also a test from Posner to Irwin of seeing testing out the waters of that, not necessarily trying to hit on him, but sort of like, here's where I'm at. Are you going to be as you know open as I am? And he doesn't. Uh, they There is talk in the play and the movie is a little more, they vocalize it a bit more, which I don't love, uh, which is sort of the, the emotional state of Hector. And part of the reason why Posner, they say Posner is never invited onto the bike in the same way that Tim's is not invited onto the bike is they're not quote unquote Hector's Old. type. Oh. Like Hector, so in the play, you know, Hector always brings on Dakin or he brings on uh, Scripps or who's the another one, Uh, Crother or, you know, a little more kind of 
masculine, I suppose, and a little more confident and sure of themselves. And maybe that is, you know, one of those stereotypes of, you know, when gay men weirdly fall in love with straight men in the same way that Posner and, and Dakin. I think another thing is Posner and Hector are the two loneliest characters in the History Boys. They are both just so lonely. The difference is that Hector is lonelier than Posner and is older than Posner mm. and thus more pathetic. And part of the reason why the students don't find much to uh, complain about with the fondling, in addition to the fact that they said like, they would, you know, they would prefer it didn't happen less because they think that their innocence is being taken from them and more that they just are like, it's inconvenient and I don't like having my, you know, my balls touched. Right. Uh, like I said, this play is very interesting in how these characters deal with um, this kind of abuse. But because he, because Hector is sort of so pathetic and they all know that, you know, his fondling them is not meant as sexual. It's literally just him trying to have any kind of human connection and physical touch. That is all he really wants. And it's that's like the little bit that he's able to have. And again, they even say like he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything sexual about it. It's really just like he puts his hand back there and touches it for a second, puts it back. He has a wife that has absolutely no interest in him. It's very clearly a bearded marriage. When the headmaster says like, do you want to tell your wife about all this? He's like, I don't think she'd care. Uh, and he even says like, I've like, what have I done with my life? I've spent it all here. I've got not, there's nothing left of me. He is this sort of shell of a man in a lot of ways. And that scene with him and Posner is so, I don't want to say upsetting, but so touching because it is too, these men are sort of like their own little islands and Posner can kind of recognize that, which I think is why he, A, wants Hector to like him, in addition to the fact that he thinks that Hector is intelligent and he, and he likes what he teaches, but he takes it all in. And it's important to remember that when we talk about the epilogue of this. And I think Posner also can sort of see a bit of his own future in Hector, mm. but that scene about connection, I don't think that Hector is necessarily requesting that Posner touch him. Oh yeah, no, I don't. I don't either. Yeah. Oh no. I I, I just want to make sure any listeners when hearing this think that as well. Uh, especially because it's also important to know that that scene comes right after Hector has been essentially fired. Yes. So he's kind of at a low point. Uh, yeah. I think. Yeah. Another reason is pause. Uh, Hector kind of also touching these boys. In his mind it's not sexual as well because these boys are so fully formed and confident and not lonely and, and are part of a, a system and a society, whereas he is not that it's in a way he feels like he's almost kind of like touching a statue at the museum and who would ever like dare to complain about that because these, you know, complete beings don't think much of him other than what, you know, what his classes do. Uh, whereas with Posner, he can maybe recognize another lonely soul and his touching Posner would be a little more of a harmful act, which he doesn't ever intend to do. Mm. And when he's even confronted about it, he says like, it wasn't men with malicious intent. And he truly still doesn't think that he did anything wrong with it, which I do like that um, 
Mrs. Lintut says, I love you, but that is total balls. A grope is a grope, no matter your enunciation of it. Yeah, he thinks that it's like an act of like God or like, it's very odd how yeah, he thinks when of himself. He, he says the act of education itself is erotic and right. he keeps getting, and people keep trying to bring him back down to reality, but you do your, people do their own mental gymnastics to validate whatever it is that they do. And it takes a lot of um, confrontation to really get through to some people. Uh, and Hector, I think the only thing that sort of gets through to him is the awareness that it's all lost. And in the play, I don't think he gets his job back. The movie, he gets his job he back. He gets it back because something happens with like a girl and the headmaster. But yeah. I, yeah, it just, it strikes me as so sad. It's the same reason that like, you know, you watch the entirety of Zero Dark Thirty and then the, you know, that man who operates the plane like talks to us. Have you seen Zero Dark Thirty? I, have, I haven't seen it since it came out. So walk me through this. You moment. remember it, but just like, you know, the mission is accomplished and Jessica mm-hmm. Chastain's character gets a private plane to go back home. And the guy's like, wow, you must be a really important person. Uh, you got the whole plane to yourself. Where do you want to go? And she kind of just like sits there and doesn't answer him. And she just kind of starts silently crying because it's like when your entire life's work is one thing or it mm-hmm. is in devotion or it is in search of something and it is done, you know, for date, um, for Hector, his, what else do I have left? Like you said, I have nothing. I'm reduced to a shell of a man. And for her, it was like, my mission is complete. I don't really have anything else to go back to. And, you know, it's the old adage of like, if today were the day you had to stop dancing, like it's just that thing. And that I think is also why it hits so hard and all of these things, because you root for these characters and then it's just goes away. Yeah. So there's a lot we're going to keep talking about, but I, but this is a great transition to talk about the epilogue for a second. And mm-hmm. well, we're going to be going back and forth y'all just so everyone's aware. And yep. the epilogue in the movie is a little different from that of the show. Yes. Most specifically with Posner. So spoiler alert for anyone who is unfamiliar with the play, but if you're listening to this episode, my assumption is that you either know the play or you uh, want to learn more about it. So we're going to talk about all the things. Yeah. Uh, at the end of term, all the boys get into Oxford or Cambridge. They get into all the top stuff, including Rudge, who everyone's surprised by. But it's because he's got family connections. His dad. And he plays his daddy. But I do like that the family connection isn't uh, like that his dad gave money to the school. His dad worked at the school. And yeah. they're like, yeah, he was a good man. Yeah. Uh, we would love somebody like, like you here. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's another way to do um, uh, a legacy uh acceptance but so all the boys get their acceptances there's also a subplot with Dakin and Irwin which we'll talk about in a second but needless to say Dakin and Irwin kind of leave things with a lot of sexual tension and Hector is about to go off on his motorbike and offers a ride to a student one last time and the headmaster goes absolutely not uh you can take Irwin with you and Irwin gets on the motorcycle and there is a crash and no one really knows exactly what caused the crash. Everybody has their theories, but the, the bottom line is that Irwin is now handicapped in the movie. He basically just like hurts his foot. He's yeah. He's on crutches. I think. Yeah. In the play, he's fully in a wheelchair. He's in a wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part, and what's interesting about the play is that the play opens with him in the with wheelchair. It, it goes I was going to say, forth. we have to talk a little bit about the framing device of the play. I don't know. Uh, it's really interesting to sort of have, 
it colors your experience, I think, so differently than like it happening out of nowhere in the film. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll talk about the framing device. So put a pin in that and remind me. Because I have thoughts on it too. Yes. But so uh, Hector dies. Erwin is now paralyzed. And uh, Mrs. Lintot then basically delivers an epilogue. The headmaster starts delivering a eulogy and gets cut off by the boys talking to the audience because the headmaster, as said by Mrs. Lintot, is a twat. Twat, she says. He's a total twat. And she then goes on to talk about sort of what became of all the boys who are all very intelligent, crafty, and because of Hector, they were able to expand their minds in ways that they wouldn't have if they were just taught like she was or like Erwin did. And she even says, like, I don't necessarily think Hector was a great teacher, but what he did was very special to these boys. And the devastating thing is that pretty much none of them uh, use what they were taught to the, the three who maybe like you could make an argument for two of them become magistrates. So they, you know, they rise in the ranks and one is a headmaster. So he's an education, but I, who's to say that he uses what he learned as a headmaster. It's entirely possible. He's become part of the system and becomes more like an Irwin or the headmaster that we have known all throughout the play. Dakin is a tax attorney and uh, Scripps, who looked like he was going to become a member of the cloth now as a journalist. Tim's uh, owns some dry cleaning businesses and smokes pot on the weekends. And Rudge uh, builds cheap homes. And then Posner, in the movie, he becomes a teacher. In the play, he becomes nothing. He lives alone and he goes to the library and he has friends online and he basically he has he he's the only one as uh, mrs lintot says who remembers absolutely everything that was taught to him it stuck with him and uh he absorbed it all and he lives a life where he has been unable to use any of it and it's the play kind of asks like was it for nothing then all this education all this learning all this as uh hector calls it passing the parcel and it's it ends up being the last line of the play, pass it on. And it's sort of, I feel like it's Bennett saying like, it is worth it if they pass it on. If it dies with them, then it's tragic. Mm. And who's to say if it does or doesn't, but you know, it is, there, part, it is partly tragic in the sense that all this effort that went into teaching these boys. And, you know, as you said earlier, the school is all about like, we got to get them into college. We got to get them to the best universities ever. And then it sort of becomes, well, they got in now what? And, you know, you find out with Posner and the framing device, like he went there and eventually dropped out because it was sort of like, he put all of his energy into getting in. Once he got there, he didn't know what he wanted to do. Yeah. And that's sort of the same with a lot of these boys. And that's sort of one of the flaws in the education system is, you know, we put so much pressure on where you go to school and, what the grades you get and all this other stuff. No one thinks about from an early age, like, what are you interested in? Let's like educate you in a way that you can become the best thing that you're passionate about. People think way too late of what they're actually wanting to do. And then a lot, that's how a lot of people end up for lack of a better term, waste their lives. And that is sort of what happens with Posner. Yeah. Uh, thoughts on the epilogue, especially compared from the stage to the film. Well, I want to go back to that. 
in just a moment because I actually before we talk about the epilogue can we talk about Dakin and Ermin and then do epilogue into framing device <laughs> but of course baby you're the guest because that colors it for me in a weird way love it the Dakin and Irwin thing when I first saw this so I first saw the movie I think it was like 2012 mm-hmm. I think I was a senior in college when I saw this for the first time that tracks and I was so you know I was completely like why I need to be in a production of this somewhere like I was just so mesmerized by it mm-hmm. and then I just remember it was sort of around the time that like I was kind of like coming out of the closet, which is like late in the game, which I own. But like I found all of it just like so interesting. And I, I was always really confused by the Dakin and Irwin relationship. But like uh-huh. now, like literally 10 years later watching it, it makes a lot more sense to me like I feel like I get it in a different way like I feel like I've met a lot of Dakins and what I mean by that because I'm sure we should define it as just this sort of thing is Dakin is really used to you know all the girls love him the guys Mm want to be him you know Posner's in love with him he gets good grades like he has everything going on for him and this teacher Erwin comes in who's also really handsome and Erwin walks through the door and he is really indifferent to Dakin. Mm-hmm. He hands back his essays and it's boring. It's average. It's this, it's that. And Dakin's sort of not used to, I feel like being challenged like that. Mm-hmm. And it makes him kind of really interested in him. And so I believe that Dakin is a hundred percent. I know sexuality is a spectrum, but like, I do believe that Dakin is like by all intents and purposes, a straight man. Yes. But I think that he is so, he gets so into this notion of getting this man to, I don't know what the word would be, respect Approve him. of him. Yeah. Approve, approve of yeah. him. Validate him. him. Validate him. That he goes so far as to like want to be sexually involved with him. And he yeah. hits him with a lot of flirtation throughout. And then right at the end of the play and the film, he would you like to to share how he proposes to him? Yes, he he propositions Erwin for sure. It's also important to remember that Erwin is like six years older than they are, whereas mm-hmm. all the other teachers are in their 50s and 60s. And yes. they even talk about it when Erwin first shows up, they thought he was a new student and yeah, they the make fun of it. Is, yeah, yeah. Well, and the, the, film, when the he, gym teacher's like, why yeah. are you in your clothes? Change in your gym clothes. And he's like, I'm on the faculty. Yeah. And in the... I don't know if it's in the movie, but in the play after his first lesson with them and Dakin's like, oh, he thinks he's so important. And, and Scripps is like, give him a break. He's about five minutes older than we are. Literally. Uh, Yeah. But so yes, after everyone has gone into their schools and Dakin has also revealed the truth that Erwin did not go to Oxford. He went to like another really good school. It just wasn't Oxford. Uh, Basically Dakin propositions Irwin and and says I was wondering about your sucking me off and by the end of their meeting it is agreed upon that it's going to happen 100% and like That's, throughout the film you know if you go 
listeners or whatever, if you go back and watch the film, it's so well directed mm-hmm. as well, because throughout the play, the, the film, you'll see like Erwin will be standing somewhere and like just behind him or like just next to him or like facing him. Like anytime they're there, like Dakin is also like looking at Erwin or like they're yeah. always sort of blocked to be right next to each other, almost touching, but not really. Um, and then this happens at the end. And I think it literally stops Erwin's heart. Like, I think he is really excited about the prospect of this. Yeah. Well, so Erwin is somebody who has kind of, so (laughs) going all over the place, but so there's a really great scene in act two slash second half of the movie where once Erwin and Hector have started sharing lessons together, the topic of the Holocaust comes up and like, how would you treat it as an essay question? And Hector being Hector, he's like, it's immoral to even ask such a thing. And, you know, all this stuff. He has a, he has a great line where he was like, they're, they take field trips now to Auschwitz. And I just wonder where do they drink their Cokes and eat their sandwiches? Yeah. Yeah, Where do they lunch if they go to Auschwitz? Like it's, he's like, it's just, it's so terrible. And you have characters like Posner and Scripps who are like, it's just the truth to say that it's, you know, awful and that you can't think of it this way. And they say these really eloquent and insightful things. And and Erwin keeps saying like, yeah, amazing. Good point. And Scripps and Posner are like, fuck your points. Like we're, like we're, be- we're offended right now. And we're telling you all to sh- kindly shut the fuck up. And it's an interesting scene because Erwin uh, keeps telling them, distance yourselves from history if you want to have a good take on it, especially if you're trying to get into one of these schools. And it's like, yes, the Holocaust, it's a little too soon to really distance yourself from it just yet. But you have eventually you will have to if you want to be taken seriously and be considered um, a good candidate to whatever you want to do. Right. And it's an it's good insight into the character of Erwin, which is to say Erwin often distanced himself from everything he looks at everything objectively he doesn't get involved he doesn't let his emotions get the better of him and the one sort of exceptions to all this is Dakin and all throughout the play all throughout the movie he has kept Dakin at an arm's length but we can sort of see the struggle that that is there and again Posner reminds us like I see him looking at him and we the play is constantly charting Dakin's obsession with Erwin. It starts with, you know, oh, this guy who thinks he's too good. And then Erwin isn't giving him that inch. And he said Dakin is used to all the praise, all the all the wonderment. And Dakin also is used to sex as validation. And and that is his language is sexuality. And so that combined with wanting to please academically Erwin then melds into wanting to sexually, you know, do things with him. And that's also just, I think, a common side effect of obsession in general, right? Like people, people are things you kind of focus on. A lot of times sexuality can get in there because it's sort of, it's an, it's another fever pitched emotion. Uh, so this is all to say, as we get to that moment, Erwin is taken by surprise a, because Dakin has presented as straight this entire time and he is still straight, but any interest he has thrown Erwin's way has always been very kind of like, uh, innuendo and almost a little kiss assy. And this is the first time that he's said anything so blunt. And it's also like, it's the end of the year. Dakin's about to leave school and it's sort of like, there's nothing really stopping them. Right. And I think that is in, in addition to wanting to be with Dakin and the bluntness of it, the fact that 
Irwin now like has the has the opportunity to do something he wants to do to not be not be objective about a situation actually be in the history of it all uh yeah it all combines to make him kind of take a beat and makes us as an audience go <gasps> and wonder yeah. what's gonna and like Dagan looks at him and he's like you know why why is there such a difference between the way you live and the way that you teach like you want us to do this 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 and this like go for it yeah like, I'm here for you I'll see you Sunday and it is just this like really charged like intense moment so um I don't mean to cut you off. What were you? Please cut me off. No, no. I was going to say the reason that I, I I asked you this and then said, I wanted to put a pin in it for a minute is because I find the beginning of the play Mm -hmm. really fascinating. You Mm. know, the beginning of the play for all intents and purposes is, is Irwin Mm -hmm. in a wheelchair speaking to three members of parliament and Erwin, by the end of the play, has he works in the government as well, right? Yes, yeah. He's the he takes umbrage with being uh, with it being said that he is in politics. He says no one's actually in politics. I work in government. Right, 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 right. And um, and he's speaking before them, and he's you know wanting to get rid of this. And I know it's different in in London in terms of like the United States, but this idea of like innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. Walk me through this, like what you think about it, because it's so fascinating that this is a man Mm -hmm. who really was drawn to a student Mm -hmm. while he had him in class. And another student calls it out. And, you know, our eyes meet looking at Dakin and he is very clearly infatuated in a way with this person mm-hmm. and he gets in this accident did we mention i mean i guess we're not giving away like the plot point about hector or are we we said it already you said that, that the, he's dead yeah okay yeah um he moved so, to the city now he's dead yep so hector is dead and erwin is alive but injured and is that a turning point for him is that him saying oh my God, I'm so glad that that never happened. You know, in the play, Dakin says like, it was the wheelchair or like, I just yeah. couldn't. What, after the, so the accident happens like on a Friday the, before that Sunday that they're supposed to get together. Mm-hmm. And Irwin is now in, permanently paralyzed. He's becomes a, a paraplegic. And yeah, in the epilogue, Dakin says like, I couldn't go through with it after that. Right. Um, and he says, I and I meant it at the time, uh, but you know, as Rudge says, history is just one thing after a fucking another thing after another. Yeah. But so he, he's standing before them and says like, maybe we should get rid of in so many words, maybe it's not as gray as we think Yeah, it's black or it's white. You're innocent so that you're guilty so that other innocent people on the street don't have to live in fear that, you know, somebody's out there. And it's like, that's such an interesting way to frame the play because we're about to meet a man Mm -hmm. who on those terms is guilty. But so then did he think that what he did was okay Mm -hmm. or would have done is okay. And I'm rambling now. So you pop in. I'm always rambling. I was rambling before you began your thing. So I think the framing device is, one of two things. One is it keeps the ending from seeming too melodramatic because imagine in a play, Erwin and like without that framing device, 
it opens with the classroom and we have the whole thing and then the accident happens and then out comes Erwin in a wheelchair. It's like just a little too Jesus Christ, you know, like it's, it's a little that. So mm-hmm. opening with him in a wheelchair and then the next scene is a flashback and he's standing. It's like, well, what happened between A and B? Sure. So you got, so that is a nice sort of mystery. The other thing is, even though Hector's the one who lost his life, Erwin also kind of died that day. Once mm-hmm. he lost the, the mobility of his legs, he lost the opportunity to get with Dakin to do something he really wanted to do. Um, and that was like the moment that he was going to, you know, actually live. And he says in the epilogue, oh, I don't remember anything up until uh, after right. Dakin after inviting the- me out for a drink, just a drink. Right. right. Um, it's like you that's not true. And you know it. And I think sort of the loss of that opportunity is two things. One, he had a genuine fear of being like Hector, of being a, you know, old man who lusts or just even sort of gazes at younger men. And Hector in the film says to him, don't touch him. You know, they know they'll think you're a fool. They think I'm a fool. Yeah. Which that is, as I said, the movie is a little more like emphasizes those stuff because that's not in the play. That line's not in the play. Interesting. Um, The line that Dakin says early in the, in the movie, like, Oh, uh, could be the, like Hector is a sad old gay who's closeted. That's not in the play. The The play does not want the audience to get everything in headlights, whereas the film, I feel like, kind of does. Uh, and I think if you watch the film for the first time, you wouldn't get that because it is very restrained in terms of the acting and the direction. They don't, like, do a giant close-up of Dick and being like, he's gay. They don't do, right, like, right. a zoom-in on Richard Griffiths being like, they think I'm a fool. Right. Um it's understated, but if you know the play beforehand, you will see the film and go, oh, a lot of the subtext is now like literal text. Mm-hmm. But this is to say um, with Irwin, you see him in the first scene and then you see him at the top of act two again, where he's uh, doing a bit for BBC two. And his take is like very harsh and very colorless and just sort of and you know this is shit this is dead god is fake all this stuff and his producer's like are you okay and you just sort of see the difference between like a young man who granted you know was reserved but wasn't dead inside and then like a little bit older and just like complete icy heart and as i said i think that accident and the losing out of his opportunity with dakin both was a saving for him in one sense because he was like i don't ever want to be like hector uh, but on the other end, he lost something he genuinely wanted. And it's like, well, I'm never going to get that opportunity again. And not only did he lose out on the opportunity, Dakin like officially cut off that line because of what happened to him. So it's mm-hmm. not enough to like, oh, we didn't get to do it that Sunday, but eventually we found, we found a moment or like he cut it off or the Irwin cut it off. It's they were going to do it. The accident happened and Dakin withdrew because Irwin is now in a wheelchair and that mm-hmm. does something to you. Um mm-hmm to literally be told by the person who you want to be with. She said like, we're not going to get together. And it's because of what you are now. That that's enough to fucking ruin you. And yeah. So I think the framing device serves those two major purposes. And on top of that, it makes the story itself history because it's in the past. Mm. The movie is much more straightforward, has no framing device. It's just, you know, the story begins and then it goes to the end. Yeah. Um, if there's one thing I will say about the framing device that I don't think it totally fulfills is especially at the top of act two, when Posner comes back as a wannabe reporter 
trying to get a story out of Irwin, they make it sound a little more salacious of like what happened than what actually happened. And so that doesn't really um, uh, pay off for me. But everything else I think works. But that's, again, my intro was the play. So, right. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, and it's so interesting that they did it in London, filmed it, came back, and then went to Broadway with it. Yeah. Like, it's so... I, that feels so out of like normal sequencing, I guess, but who knows what the, well, the, would so yeah, I, I'll talk about it for a bit. We're going to still continue talking about the play, but I'll say this right now in terms of the legacy for listeners, people forget what a genuine theatrical phenomenon that show was when it came out in okay. London, especially, but I mean, it was big here too. It, the only reason why it wasn't as big as it was in London is a, you know, while we can all sort of relate to the educational uh, system and and prejudice and and uh, order of importance of exams, there's a lot about it that is very British, which the British audiences would understand a bit more than Americans. But Americans didn't embrace it. And on top of that, it didn't it was a limited engagement here. So it didn't have the benefit of time to like play here for two years and like do a national tour in America and like sweep and was the country. Also like, was it like the same year in America with like spring awakening and, and all it of that? was the year before. Oh, uh, okay. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Cause I've got a little, I've got a pop quiz for you at oh, the end. Geez. Uh, you're, you're totally going to fail it. Don't worry. Okay. You're it's all fine. And as what is it, was it that Hector says, Hector says that examinations are the enemy of education. So don't okay, worry. Well, thank you, Hector. Thank you. So you're going to fail it and just know that you uh, came out triumphant anyway. Okay. Exams exams are the enemy. I'm not a good test taker, so I'm excited. That's sort of the thing, though, is like you can be so like it took me forever to realize that I am not dumb because I was a terrible test taker. I was bad at school. Um, I struggled. I was I was good at school until I was like 12 or 13 and then something snapped and I couldn't ever really get back on track. Hmm. And like, I would be on track for a couple of months and then it would go off the rails again. And I just thought like, I'm never going to achieve much still haven't, but not going to achieve much because like, I can't test so hard and I don't understand bi- uh, biology and chemistry and al- and like algebra takes forever and all this other stuff. And history boys kind of shows how like, that's not really what learning is about. Yeah. Learning is not about your test scores. It's not about what college you go to. It's about how you absorb information and use it. And I think maybe I think the reason I kind of um, reconnected so hard with the show when doing research for it. So like for everyone out there listening, I was figuring out exactly which plays I wanted to cover for this podcast again, because plays are harder to do research for than musicals. Musicals, you're pretty much guaranteed a bootleg of it out there somewhere. So you can say to your guest, Hey, so-and-so is on YouTube. We were very lucky with history of boys being on there, but I was like, okay, it could be history boys. could be curious incident. Very happy when I reached out to you and you're like, let's do history boys. It was like, ah, amazing. And then I kind of got I back into it. I love curious incident. I do too. And I saw honestly, it three times on Broadway, but this, I just felt like I really wanted to revisit. I'm, I'm very glad you chose to revisit it uh, because I did love curious incident. This, so as we, as I was 
rereading it as I was watching the bootleg again, as I was watching the movie, I kind of was taken aback by how much I connected to it all over again. Hmm. And I think part of that is like with this podcast, with how I've uh, restructured it, how I've sort of uh, redone the vision of it. It is similar in a way to like Hector and his teaching, which is to say that like, this is a lot of information and a lot of different viewpoints on various shows that have already existed, that have been made, have been performed, are in the canon and people know them. And one could argue like, what's the point of even doing it? People will read it on their own. People will do whatever they want. Like who's going to absorb this? And it's, I don't expect anyone to remember absolutely everything that's said on this podcast. I don't remember everything that's said on this podcast. I, that's always going to be the case. But I feel like, especially with the theater community, I mean, I say especially with the theater community only because we're as guilty as everyone, but we have always kind of thought of ourselves as a little more elevated than like the film industry or sports or whatnot in terms of, you know, being insightful in terms of uh, pushing the boundaries and, and being aware I find that's not usually the case. I find we tend to embrace uh, just as much the like uh, comfort food or the like synthetic junk food as we do anything that like a lot of craft was taken care uh, put into. And again, I am rambling partly because I haven't eaten in four hours because I am very special, but it's for me, it's sort of the mentality of don't we want to constantly be pushing ourselves to be bettering ourselves? And the, and that doesn't mean only taking in like the most dense of works. You can get an education out of anything, but the point is to absorb everything and then uh, sort of figure out what you've learned from all of it, right? Like not to just blindly love everything, blindly hate everything. So like when people go, oh, if you got nothing nice to say about a show, don't say it. And I'm like, if you have something, if you have negative thoughts, think of a way to say that people can absorb it. But that only comes from taking in as much as possible. I didn't start disliking shows or a show until I was like 16 and I had seen Carolina Change and Light in the Piazza and The Pillow Man, like my brain expanded with all of that and then the films that I was seeing and the books I was reading the people I met I'm hoping that listeners take this and can start absorbing the world and works and thinking about themselves and their journeys as they as they take in these things in a different way since listening to this Mm. I do not expect to uh become the Maharaja of of theater of you know telling everyone this is what's good this is what's bad I would love that I would love to be that person but unfortunately I don't think that'll ever happen all I can do is sort of you know take what I've learned take what I think and pass it on pass on the parcel and hope that others will do the same and I think that is why I have gotten such an emotional connection to this play yeah since we started uh researching it together and Mm -hmm. talking about it today yeah, I don't, it's such a weird thing. It's such a weird thing because I didn't expect it and I don't think anyone else would expect it when they hear of this play because people don't talk about it as much as they used to. Right. 
Agreed. Thoughts. James, say things, please. I talked for nine hours and I don't remember anything I just said. No, I think that you're, I think that you're right. I think it's just, you know, it hit me. I, I emailed you after I rewatched the film a couple of days ago. And I just said, you know, it's amazing how it, it, it just resonates in you. And especially over the course of like the 10 years or so that I had read it and just where I'm at in my life right now. And the things that I feel like I'm trying to pass on to my students, you know, I, I work with young kids. I work with mm-hmm. fourth, fifth, and sixth graders in the summer and beyond. And I teach at LIU Post. I work with college sophomores and juniors. And, you know, what do I want my classroom to look like? Or like, what is the most important thing to do? Am I teaching them currently like the most important or like the most impactful way to walk into audition room? What is your best 32 bar and let's polish it off so that it's like shining or do I spend my time? um, I've been saturating them the last like three weeks with like Michael John LaCusa and like um, Janine Tesori and, and all of, not that any of these people are off the beaten path, but I'm steering them away from wanting to do things that are only at the forefront of our, you know, musical theater canon and really try to dig deep and understand and come from a place of character. So when I watch this, you know, I think about, you know, what Hector's doing. We'll take knowledge breaks in the middle and it's important to also sing a song and mm-hmm. and reenact something and, and recite poetry just to have it as a bit of, of knowledge for yourself. And, you know, the thing that you said about Posner, is it a life? Was it a waste? Or like, is it a waste? You know, throughout my life, I've known some of the smartest people. And, you know, you hear this all the time from actors that are like the best actor in drama school with me is no longer an actor. And I've known some incredible actors just from like growing up in college and beyond and some training programs and things who are just not actors anymore or or, or people who I thought were going to be X, Y, and Z and they're A, B, and C instead. And it's just like, was any of it, was it not worth it? No, I don't think so. And so it's just amazing that it can open the door to these these conversations. I think the play has a lot of weight and, and conversation to be had from it. And I think the interesting thing too is how it reads and how it is is viewed in 2021 in terms of like that gray line. You know, we're yeah. in a really interesting moment in the world where, you know, you talk about like cancel culture, you talk about um, sort of what is and isn't allowed or what is frowned upon today. I don't know that this play would have had the same um, r- impact in 2021 if it had come out because it would be sort of unfathomable that um, this teacher would be allowed one more day in the school. So it's just, you know, it just opened so many doors and got my gears turning a lot. So yeah. I'm glad that it did that for both of us. Absolutely. I, I mean, I hope that anyone who comes upon this play, if they really only harp on the Hector sexually assaulting the students on his bike, if that's the only thing they can focus on, I urge you to think past that. And I say this as someone like 
the episode will not have come out as we are recording this, but it will be coming out the week after this. In the Phantom episode, I was very open about my uh, sexual trauma in my youth and like what, how that has affected certain works for me and how, but I've learned how to kind of distance that from the work itself. So like, for example, it was in the Phantom episode and I talk about like the grooming that I realized happened to me in high school and took like six years for me to like understand. And once I understood that coming back to Phantom, which mirrored my grooming almost to a T minus the, you know, like um, disfigurement and being underneath an opera house and, you know, dead dad shit. My dad's still very much alive, but it was it mirrored so close that I, I, it took me like a day or two to come back to the show and be like, okay, I need to like view this more objectively. So I don't necessarily project my story onto what the show is trying to do. And some of the, and with that, I was able to kind of discern things that I don't like about the show. Cause I think of what it is trying to do that said with history boys, as you mentioned with cancel culture and with, and what you're allowed, what you're not allowed. I want to see so many different kinds of stories and I don't want to see happy people doing happy things and happy worlds. Hector is the saddest of men. He is so brilliant. He is so insightful and he is so sad and broken people do broken things all the time. It's something different when you watch someone on high, uh, ruining others. You know, I think that's something that uh, people constantly have been, uh, misunderstanding with Dear Evan Hansen lately, which granted, I have my issues with the show as well. And the movie, I think, makes those issues kind of worse. But Evan is not coming on high going, yes, Murphy's, Connor Murphy's family, spin in circles. I have control of you. He's a broken person who gets who gets lost in the muck. And with Hector, the muck is the decades wasted and figure and just finding anything he can do. And unfortunately, it's in a way that is terrible and as again this the play makes it very clear that they're not condoning it but rather the play also kind of doesn't want to villainize it because it's so they're not treating Hector as a villain but as a human as a broken human who is who does this thing and you have characters who say a grope is a grope and we need the audience to understand like this is not a world in which everyone goes oh no but of course and the students aren't even saying like, oh yeah, no, like it's, we like it. It's fine. They're more like, I don't like it, but it's fine because of X, Y, and Z. And whether your reasonings don't line up, line up with theirs or not is sort of beside the point. It's about watching these characters in this situation, how they feel, you know? And I wish people would kind of come back to that. Not everything is about us. We can relate to it. The History Boys is not about me, but I relate to it fucking hard. Mm. Yeah. That's a really good point. You know, stories can can exist for us to just say this is something that happens yeah. and it doesn't have to directly involve me. Yeah. Well, so it comes back to what Hector was saying about when you read something and it's almost and if you connect to it, it's like something reaching out to you and grabbing your hand. It's it's contact mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. That's not to say that the person who wrote it or made the work literally looked James Crichton in the face and said, here's something I want to make to show James Crichton that he's worthless and garbage. Bam. Yeah. They made something and you saw it and you had a reaction to it. And 
yeah, like I said before, I think it's important to recognize the difference. I don't think enough people do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know that I'm interrupting you for just a second because it's so interesting. It's I had no keeps, sentence left. I had no, no it just keeps hitting me in the head. You, you brought up Unknown Soldier before, but um, there's a lyric in the opening of the show. Um, and, you know, it was it was an emotional experience for for the director, Trip Coleman and, and Danny Goldstein, who wrote the book to, you know, relive it without Michael Friedman, the composer being there who had passed away a few years earlier. And, you know, one of the lyrics that happens at the beginning of the show is this little girl at the top says, but I, I think sometimes you see a picture or hear a song or read a letter and a person that's forgotten comes alive for a moment. And it's this thing, it's sort of like that um, Hector quote of you're not sure what it is or when it's going to happen, but it's that thing that stops your breath for a second. And it feels like connection in the most unexpected places. Yeah. The play is also very big on exactly, again, what is history, right? Everyone has their own different definitions of it. Rudge says it's one thing after another. One of my personal favorite lines is uh, Mrs. Lintot saying, uh, History is a commentary on the various and continuing incapabilities of men. History is women following behind with the bucket. She ain't wrong. She's not wrong. She has a great line that one of the students actually uses for his examination, which is about Elizabeth I, where she goes, Elizabeth I isn't uh, unique because of her uh, her capabilities compared to her other sisters. She's unique because of how she, about the way she was able to exercise them, whereas no other woman was. Is it and I'm butchering the, that line, but that's the extent of it. Is it in the script? I'm forgetting if it's in the script the same as it is in the movie. I think that what's his name, Rudge's thing is it's just one fucking thing after another. I think he yeah, throws Ru- in a little. Yeah. He's got to get in his little, his cuss. Yes. When they're, they are practicing their interviews and. Uh, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's, and Posner's talking about music and they're like, well, who's your favorite composer? Posner says Mozart. Erwin says, no, think of someone more interesting. They're all going to say Mozart. <laughs> And Foster's like, but I don't know anyone else. And he's like, and I could talk about Mozart forever. And Hector's like, why doesn't he just say the truth? And everyone's like, because everyone's going to say Mozart. Don't you get it? Like, here's four other unique composers you could say. And then Rudge, they come up and they go, what does history mean to you? And Rudge says. It's just one fucking thing after another. (laughs) Yep. Played by Russell Tovey. Ah, break my arm. Daddy. Honestly, half this cast are people who could break my arm. Russell Tovey, Dominic Cooper, Jamie Parker. Talented cast well insanely talented yes and the talent plus their dreaminess plus the fact that they just seem like genuinely nice guys and they're oh. british makes me want to be their french maid i <laughs> francis de la tour is not as tall as she is in the harry potter films no madame maxine believe it or not she is not nine feet tall in real life <laughs> but she still I, is pretty tall she is very tall i believe history boys came out the year after Goblet of Fire, or at least it came to Broadway the year after Goblet of Fire. So we all sense. knew her. Yeah, we all knew her as Madame Maxine. We're like, Madame Maxine, she is not French. Yeah, that would make sense. Because if, yeah, wow, this is taking me back. For me, 2005, 2006 was all about, well, still wicked, but it was, it was still really much spring awakening time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Lighting the Piazza, Spelling Bee. Like that was the yeah. vibe for me. It a was lot. this, yeah, this was the season after Piazza and Spelling Bee came out. So those shows were still running. 
uh, Spring Awakening, I think, was about to start at the Atlantic that summer. Oh, so Spamalot and all that. Like, um... Spamalot was out, yeah. Um, Spamalot did not really stay with me. Sarah Ramirez stayed with me. But okay. yeah, as I said, like, basically, I saw Pillow Man in 2004. Uh, sorry, I saw, yeah, Pillman and Carolina changed in 2004. And then I saw Light in the Piazza in 2005. And then a monster was born. I yeah, became you were just like, wait. Yeah. This is magic. This is what theater can do. And like, I also still love Wicked. I, I've said it before seeing the entire original company of Wicked, the last week of previews remains like one of the highest points of my theater going life. Yeah. But yeah, again, expansion of your brain, of all the different kinds of things, finding of value in various genres and mediums and of and course. whatnot. I mean, I, oh God, I mean, I just love the Great British Bake Off. I could watch it till the cows come home, but I could also watch Arrested Development or I could watch Mad Men. Who's to say? Who's to say? Or I could watch The Red Shoes or Amadeus, like just so many beautiful things out in the world. Damn. Yeah. Final thoughts on Boys of History. Did we Have we talked about all the things we said we want to talk about we talked about the framing device we talked about dakin and erwin we talked about hector we talked about posner a bit um a lot we don't we haven't really mentioned scripts that much but scripts is a pretty well-adjusted character and honestly is more sort of like a commentator i feel like than someone who's a part of it and somebody that i would like to play um yes you should play him (laughs) do you love jesus like he does no no he has a line that i really like which is um yeah that's the only thing you're right. Hmm. No, it's fine. It's fine. I was you raised. Can... I was raised um, Roman Catholic, but uh, yeah, no, no. But that's what acting is for, James. Baby, channel into it. He says, uh, "God's this mass case of unrequited love." We're wrong. He's like all the all these people love him, and he does not love us back. But he's, he's but and he's and he's a religious character. And what's ironic is that he does not do anything re- in regards to religion in his later life. He becomes a journalist. Right. Right, right. Yeah. But I mean, like, it, uh, yeah, that sounds, it all sounds about right, to be honest, about being raised Catholic. <laughs> yeah. So th- there's a line that Hector quotes at the beginning by A.E. Hausman in the very first um, lesson that we watch him in, where he says, All knowledge is precious, whether or not it serves the slightest human use. And I think that is probably, in a nutshell, the point of the history boys and what we've been talking about this entire time. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like I the agree. fact that, yeah, I, again, like I can quote most of Amadeus. I can also quote a lot of fairly odd parents. I think both have equal weight in this world. Yes. And both have their own importance. Yeah. Amadeus is a really good film and play. Amadeus is <laughs> fucking baller. It's hot, amazing. Hot take James Crichton. Amadeus. Good movie. It's so good i sometimes am like why is this movie as good as it is oh and i've told people in the past i'm like you think you're gonna hate it because it's a two hour and 40 minute period film about mozart and from the 80s that won all these oscars so you're like oh this 80s oscar baby period film within the first five minutes you are in it you will be devastated when it ends it's so good so there's good yeah uh, there's so many great things out there i want people to check out amadeus working girl Red shoes, all my redheads. Check out all the redheads in my life. Um, yeah, yeah. I have. I don't think I have much else to say. I think no, we, we said a lot. My, we did my big ones because that really is. Those are sort of like the meaty things that I walk away from really wanting to like dissect. Yeah. I just think that 
the other thing is like in 10, well, I guess actually maybe not even 10 years, maybe a little less. I want to play Irwin also. That's a role that I really want to play. That's a good one. I I mean, I want to play Francis de la Tour, but that's not going to happen. She's also I mean, brilliant. Brilliant. She is brilliant, brilliant. brilliant. I mean, I don't act anymore. Speaking of the best actors you've ever seen, James, who don't act anymore. I don't really you? act anymore. It's just me. Yeah. I'd never seen you act, but I believe it. Thank you. Uh, I was pretty good in my youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty, pretty good. I, I did study. I studied it for a bit. Believe it or not, I had to play Biff in Death of a Salesman for a scene study class in college. We like Arthur Miller. We're, we're feeling good. and <laughs> Well, were we feeling good? No, I was not feeling as confident with it as I did with, say, like, um, not to blow my own horn, but like I was more confident doing Hamlet in that class than I was in doing salesman just because like, I don't know, a guy who talks too much and can't make up his mind and yells at people all the time. Listen, that's you talk about Amadeus, like it's accessible. Shakespeare's pretty accessible. So I get it. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, I, Hamlet, I would argue is actually one of the more accessible plays. Like you read it and you can, you know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, there are other ones that I, that are harder for me to kind of get into. Sure. I've tried with Richard the third, like four different times. I've seen multiple productions. I'm not in hot take here. I've seen four different productions of King Lear. I've seen John Lithgow do it. I've seen Ian McKellen do it. I can't get into it. Hamlet, Twelfth Night, and uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, Much Do About Nothing. I can get into every single time I see yeah, them. We love. love we them. love. We stand. We stand. Uh, yeah. No, I, I would like to do uh, a, you know, pop up one night only staged reading with us and some friends. You can play scripts. I can play Posner. We'll get and I'll play the people. piano. I'll and do the piano parts. Yeah. And I will sing Bewitched. I will I will make a public singing appearance for the first time in years. Warm up Love the it. voice. Love it. it. Yeah. Uh so as I mentioned before, History Boys opens in 2006 to rave, 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 rave reviews. I want to read a couple of uh quips here that I think just are very relevant to what we've been talking about. The LA Times says. Every once in a while, a play comes along that helps you understand why you keep coming back to Broadway, despite its rampant commercialism and overpriced mediocrity. Harsh, not entirely inaccurate. I would think that's an overstatement. I don't think that applies to everything. Overpriced 100%, though. Mm. Tickets are too expensive. Sure. That satisfying feeling, a clear sign that you're in the presence of true originality, is hard to explain, but you know it from the tingling rush of enjoyment that envelops you during the performance and the savored memories that linger long afterward. Yes, bitch work. Mm -hmm. Talking Broadway said how much history the play itself makes remains to be seen, but the history boys, which is playing only through September 3rd, it did extend for a month is one of those plays that simply must be seen before it becomes history itself. Um, The only person who didn't like it was Clive Barnes, which is ironic because he was British. I said, Oh, so the, um, Variety says, and this is, I think, touches on why I think this play works so well. Among his contemporaries, Tom Stoppard, Michael Frayn, Carol Churchill, they are brilliant intellectual playwrights, but Bennett is as much a humanist as an intellectual. His plays are the work of a restless, questioning mind, but also of a gentle soul and an immovable outsider whose writing has remained impervious to the effects of success and privilege. It's the sparkling balance of the literate with the poignant that makes the history boys so enjoyable. And I think that is extremely accurate. Mm. Uh, Something I've been talking about on this series a lot is people think when they think of British works, they go, oh, dense, esoteric, 
you know, intellectually masturbatory. And it's like, yes, sometimes you have some of that. I don't think I can name you a single person who has sat through all of Tom Stoppard's travesties and understood all of it. Um, Like, I think you're lucky if you can get 60% of that play. But a lot of these works actually do hit you on a very emotional level. And a lot of them embrace what you can do in a theater in a way that not all American things do. Uh, They really acknowledge that you are signing an invisible contract with an audience. And like, we are going on this journey together and you're going to see what the magic of theater can be. And I think that's relevant here with the History Boys because it's an intelligent play, but it's not dense. It is not impossible to get through. It is human, it is funny. And something that Nicholas Heitner actually said, um, I didn't say it earlier, but Nicholas Heitner said at the beginning of rehearsals for the History Boys, uh, like on the very first day, uh, they plopped out the scripts and he says, uh, there's a lot of stuff in the script I didn't get until I had to look it up. It's got a lot of references. So let's all come to an agreement today that there is no question to ask in rehearsal that is too stupid. Yeah. If you don't understand something, have at. And I think because with that work, everyone on stage and in the movie understood it all after they worked on it so much that even if we don't get every reference, because of how they relay it to us, we get the essence of what they're talking about and we get how it relates to whatever point they're trying to make, right? Yeah, you know, Alan Bennett said in that documentary too, he was like, I really would much, and I think that this just goes back to, I mean, so many times I feel like I've read like Uta Hagen's books and other things where she was like, I hate when actors like wanna get together and talk and get to know each other. It's like, no, get to know each other through the work. Thank you so much. And he says in the interview, he's like, I would prefer always to get started, but it seemed really important to almost have like school at the beginning of this. Yeah. And a lot of the boys in the, in the interview were like, I didn't know what was going on until the first preview. They were like, there was just so much going on in terms Mm -hmm. of like, we're doing the subjunctive. We're doing the, this, we're talking about these, we're talking about gerunds. We're talking, there's so much that they're hitting you over the head with in terms of like the, the knowledge that if you weren't paying attention in English, you better be paying attention in the rehearsal room because they're coming for you. Oh, 100%. Um, but it's, it, again, it's with the national and British rehearsal periods, like it is all that work that in, in the beforehand that seems sort of uh, unnecessary at the time pays off in spades later on. Yeah. Talk about this in the Les Mis episode. The Broadway company of Les Mis always like to joke that like the first week of rehearsal, they like didn't touch the score. They did acting exercises and improvisations and they all to be animals in a zoo. And then they had to come in and say like, my character is this cartoon character. And oh. yeah, like, like all these random things. And at the time they went, we didn't know what was going on. We all thought this was like a prank. And then we got to the show. And with that particular thing, and I, I do love Nunn's work on Les Mis. I do not like his work on some other stuff, one of which will have been covered by this point on the podcast. But with Les Mis, which is such an epic show where you have to play a million characters and you have to kind of be in the scene in the moment and like make all these uh, acting decisions. Once you sort of have opened your mind to the idea of like, okay, what superhero is Cosette? What Sunday morning cartoon is Marius? Once you've gone that far, coming up with like a choice in the, in the moment in the scene is not that hard to do. You, mm. you, your mind is so is so much more open to all these possibilities that you can start bouncing as many ideas off the wall as possible. And that's sort yeah. of the brilliance and the madness of that. Same thing with History Boys of like putting in all the schoolwork 
seem sort of flippant at the moment. You want to just work on the text, but it helps make the text make sense to you and thus to the audience. Um, which I really appreciate. The show won six Tony Awards, including Best Play, Director, Actor, and Supporting Actress. Uh, Do you know what the other three play nominees were this year? This is the question. This is the quiz. Um, One hint is that Cynthia Nixon won her first Tony Award this year. That's not Rabbit Hole. No, Rabbit Hole won. It is. Oh. Rabbit Hole, I think, won the Pulitzer, but not... Oh, it didn't win the Tony? This did? History Boys won the uh, Tony, yeah. History's, History Boys swept. Um, I think oh, they, like, okay. maybe I was, lost... Oh, so I was choose. thinking of the Pulitzer. Okay. Yeah. Oh. So Rabbit Hole was one Rabbit of the Hole, four. This. Is it I Am My Own Wife? No, I Am My Own Wife was a few years earlier. That did win Best Play, as well okay. as the Pulitzer. Okay. This was oh. Rabbit Hole, Shining City, and Lieutenant of Inishmore. Oh, Wow. Yeah, it, this is a good year. Really uh, good. Of the four, I would probably say Lieutenant would be the only one I would vote for other than History Boys. Uh, I like Rabbit Hole a great deal. I think Rabbit Hole is more uh, effective in terms of w- what actors can bring to it, as is evident with you know, Cynthia Nixon winning a Tony, Nicole Kimmon getting an Oscar nominated for the film. Uh, Shining City, I have absolutely no memory of. I don't. Who wrote that again? Shining City? Yeah. Um, I want to say Connor McPherson. Okay. Is that, that's a person, right? It is. I just don't remember why. I like see it floating around in my head, but I just don't remember the playwright who wrote it. Um, Shining City is floating in your head? Just like I can see the title at like the drama bookshop and I just can't picture who Connor McPherson. Yeah, Connor McPherson. Yep, Yep, I was right. Uh, I feel like he was Oliver Platt and someone else on yeah it was oliver platt and brian f o'burn on broadway oh Oh, and martha plimpton go fig uh oh also manhattan theater club manhattan theater club had two best play nominees this year go manhattan yeah 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 there was no way lieutenant of inishmore was going to win though there was simply too much blood at the end of that show Mm -hmm. uh the show ran as i said they extended for one more month running 185 performances was a very big hit made with a good deal of money. The movie came out. The movie was not very well received, James. I don't know if you know this. No, I would it, believe it. I feel like that's always the case. Yeah. I'm it's, like the person who's like thrilled about it. You know, I like yeah. go to the film and. I think also because the play was so rapturously received and so many people loved it. The, and this was like, it's the same director. It's the entire company. Like, it, this is going to be great. And the, the reception wasn't even bad. It was just sort of like, it's fine. You know, it like they do a fine job. It's not a travesty, but it did not excite people the way that the play did. And I, after having seen it for the first time this week in preparation for this, I can understand why it is a good movie. And I think if like you, if someone watched it without ever having seen the play, they would like the movie as well. Totally. Yeah. And again, like the writing is just so good and the performances are so good. The play, I just feel, I think the play is a little less transparent about some of the points while also expanding certain scenes in a way that obviously you can't do in the film. Like you can't do some of the classroom scenes for as long in the movie as they do it in the play, mm-hmm. which is a shame as right. they're really good. Right. right. But as I mentioned, like no national tour, uh, it hasn't come back since 2006. Not many people talk about it. Uh, mm-hmm. Nicholas Heiner eventually left the national as the artistic director and started the bridge theater where I saw Alan Bennett's play. Alleluia, which I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Mm-mm. 
that is about a nursing home where the head nurse would often uh, kill patients. But similar to something like History Boys or even there's a, Allie Gordon told me there's a character in Corum Boy that's sort of like this. Oh, where yeah. Yeah, it's it's she they ha, they were had a shortage of staff and of beds. And her mentality was as soon as a patient started wetting themselves uh, uncontrollably, when they couldn't control their bladder anymore, that's when she knew that they were on the path towards uh, decrepitude and like not being able to be taken care of anymore. Like it was going to be a drain on the resources. And so she would uh, euthanize. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She would euthanize them. They would die in their sleep. And it's discovered at the end of the play that that's what she's doing. And there are other plot lines happening in addition to this. And when she's sat before the board, the play is really good about like for a minute, you kind of go, I can kind of see what you're talking about. She was like, we don't, we didn't have enough medicine. We didn't have enough beds. We weren't getting any more funding from uh, government. You know, these people's families drop them off and expect us to do all the work. They come once a year and they were going to die within a year or two. Anyway, I was just sort of cutting it short and allowing us to have the room for people who did need our help. And it was, I'm doing it not any justice because Alan Bennett is such a good writer, but it was so well written and was so well acted that everyone in the audience for like the briefest of 30 seconds went kind of see your point. And then the play moved on and we're like, okay, no, we're, we're back. We're back to understanding that killing people is wrong. No, we totally wow. get it. Yeah. 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 But what it's, I mean, it's Alleluia. A L L E L U J A H. Okay. Yeah. But like, read it. yeah. And similar to history boys had a lot of musical interludes. Uh, the patients would, uh, the residents would, you know, sing and dance a lot. And the final moment of the play was them sort of going off singing into the sunset, but it was also like kind of a gray area because the hospital was getting shut down and they were all being dispersed to other hospitals. And it's like, well, who's to say where they're going is going to be any better. Any better. Yeah. Same problems. Just they aren't going to have a head nurse who kills them. Right. Yeah. That's very interesting. Uh, yeah. Definitely check it out. I thought it was quite good. Um, yeah. Ultimate final thoughts on, on the boys of history. I hope that it unlocks something in you too that maybe has felt dormant in this time where, you know, we've been away from theater for a while. And for a while I was away from anything at all relating to the theater. And so watching it when I did as theater is reopening itself was, I think also very healing for me, just because I was reminded of like the power of what it could do and its possibilities. And I hope that through whichever character you find something in it, because I think there really is quite possibly something for everyone to like the moment that Hector talks about where you just find a, a moment of connection and feeling seen for just a minute. Um, Cause that small minute I think has lasting um, impact. I've been thinking about this film since I watched it last week, all weekend and all day. And I was so excited to talk about it today and rewatch the documentary, ma- the making of the documentary, like stuff about it. Like, it's just something that I feel like I'm going to keep tapping into and I will be waiting for the next revival. <laughs> well, 
We'll make it happen. Wherever We're the next is. revival. The moment is Please. us. We are the moment. Please. Yeah. I hope people, if they come to this, we've now become a culture where everyone wants to be the one who knows. And there's so much joy in learning. Mm. And I and I feel like people have a sense of shame of having to be taught something, of not knowing the facts beforehand. People want to be the one with the knowledge. People want to be the one who informs others, not even informs others, like lectures others. Mm. And it's so great to pass on knowledge, but it's also so great to absorb it. So there's no shame in learning. There's a great joy in it. Take it on. Pass it on, boys. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. That's really, really lovely. And I think that that is a great message of the play. Like you said, like that's how it ends in both in both instances, the film and the yeah. play. Yeah. The, yeah, as I said, the, the movie, they make it that like Posner becomes a teacher and he does say something in the play, in the movie that's not in the play that I thought was really wonderful line where he says, I'm not happy, but I'm no longer unhappy about it. Yeah. And there's something beautifully poetically tragic and also calming about that right I just sort of like and it, it's not complacency it's acceptance mm-hmm. and you can save yourself a lot of turmoil by sometimes having an understanding and an acceptance yeah uh, yeah it's as powerful as any power ballad <laughs> Nami. I mean and maybe more so maybe more so god I hope they never try to turn this into a musical they just ruin it this no play musical. has all the music it needs. Yep. It's enough. Um, I don't usually do this with the plays because it doesn't uh, it doesn't translate as well as it does with musicals, but I will ask a couple of questions for you on this one. Uh, one is scale of one to ten. One being no 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 way, and ten being now and forever. Where does this how does this play rank for you? Oh, um nine and a half. One hundred percent. Same Z's. Uh I dreamed a dream cast. Is there anyone besides us who you'd like to see in this? Do you have like a Hector or a Mrs. Oh, Lintot in your brain? I'm so bad at, at dream casting. Um, Why so terrible? I don't know. I'm not good at it. I'm really not good at it. But I mean, like there are people. I mean, like. I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I feel like it's one of those things where like the press release would come out and I would just be like, yeah, what about you? Do you, do you have dreams about it? Um, I like don't Har- have Harvey he- Firestein. Is that like, a- no, cause it's not just like the size. It's also kind of, um, but I feel like he is Danny Burst. I don't, um, I don't know. Like who's so beloved. Like I love Harvey. To me, he feels very like, um, in a way, like his plays and what he's done in terms of like passing the, the parcel. I, you know, from Torch Song to Casa Valentina to sure. his work in musicals, I just feel like he has always been kind of like an anchor in a way and mm-hmm. well versed in everything other related to the theater and musicals, plays. Um, Fair. You've, you've got me intrigued to see that now. I The moment you first said his name, I said no, but now I'm like, maybe. And, now yeah, and there's no. just something, and there's something about him as 
as Tevia too, um, that I'm a bit of a sucker for. Mm. I did not see his Tevia, but I heard he was very good. Uh, I'm going to butcher her name, but Noma Duma, how do you say her name? Hermione and Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. I would love to see her Mrs. Lintot. I think she'd be phenomenal. Damn. Yeah. I just really, I imagine her saying the university she went to, she said there, uh, there was a lot uh, of good there. It's where I had my first pizza. Other things too, but it's the pizza that stands out. She would be remarkable yeah. in that role. Damn. Yeah. That's great casting. I mean, and just because at this point, there's nothing I don't want to see him in. I feel like there's a role for Timothy Chalamet in there somewhere, maybe. Oh, I mean, like, couldn't he theoretically be like in 10 years like Dakin or no? I mean, he's the right age for it. Now, all these guys were in their early to mid 20s when the play came out. And I, and Timothy is like 28 now. He is. Like that. I think so. He's not like because. So Call Me By Your Name was four years ago. I feel like he was 23 or 24 at the time. So he's he's past 25, 26. He's got to be. <sighs> How? Let's find out. How old is Timothy Chalamet? Oh, I'm wrong. He's 25. <laughs> But he'll be 26. If he was 28, he'd be two years younger than me. And that's just not right. That's not acceptable. He'll be 26 in December. Okay. That feels more right to me. That feels less right to me. I was really looking forward to him being closer to my age. And now I am upset. So now you can be Irwin to his Dakin. How's that sound? Oh, God, that's really scary. But, uh, (laughs) you know, because Irwin, I guess, is really not that much. No. He's, I I think he's, yeah, he's like 24, 25 in the meat of the play. And these guys are 17, 18. So damn. Yeah. I'm closer to Irwin now. Yeah. You, you are Irwin. You are an Irwin age. Although I think the actor, no, the actor played Irwin was about our age when he did it. He just, you know, they tried to make him seem a little more nebbishy with the glasses and the flat hair, but I have to look him up. I think he's amazing. He's very good. There is everyone in it. Everyone in that play was just fantastic. I mean, the other ones don't really make any sense. I can't ask you what song you would cut from History Boys because... Right, no. No. You the, can't cut just, any of them. They were brilliant. Yeah. they When they sing Blackbird, oh, I love it. The Gorgeous. last one, I guess, is um, it's the Rainbow High Spectacle. <laughs> Do you think that the show needs production value to work? No. No. <laughs> this show could happen, you know, I'm not saying that it should. But, you know, in a way that like John Doyle took Dead Poet Society and put it at classic stage mm-hmm. and it was just in a black box. Like, I think that this could absolutely work with nothing. Chairs. So, I don't remember the name of the actor. Do you watch Ted Lasso speaking of Dead Poets and Jason Sudeikis? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the actor who plays Hannah Waddingham's assistant. What's his Kiele. name? Oh, Kiele. No, not Ke- no, not oh. Kele. Oh, not, Higgins. That's, that's Higgins. Higgins, yeah. I was saying, not Juno Temple. I know Juno Temple's name by heart. Love her. Love I saw her, her in Atonement. Oh, Higgins. The actor who plays Higgins, Sorry, my, I feel my like dog he is would be a- right now. <laughs> I think Higgins would actually be a really good Hector. Love that. Yeah. He is brilliant on that show, too. But he yes. would be a really good Hector. A little bit softer, but yeah. yeah. It's got to be someone who is non-threatening and just you, f- and you just are- in love with and sort of not in awe of, but just kind of like in su- constant surprise of. And I think that is something he could do really well. I agree. I love yeah. that. The whole cast of Ted Lasso 
Yeah. In, I mean, it would work. It would work. Set it in actor, the locker room. Actor who plays Jamie. He's he's our Dakin. Jamie. No, I would much prefer um, Roy. Roy. Roy Kent. Roy Kent. He's here. He's there. He's yeah. every fucking where. Roy Kent. I would Kent. much prefer him as Dakin. And then... We'll figure everything else out. We'll figure everything else out. It's great. Um, James, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been delightful. Thank you for having me. I really, you have really posed some really insightful and eye-opening ways to look at the play. And I hope that that inspires a lot of listeners to watch, read, and view with a vengeance. So thank you. I hope so too. First of all, thank you for that compliment. That makes me feel very nice. Uh, this leads into something else that I want to tell everyone. If you like the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to it. We just got a new review. Uh, by the time this comes out, this review will have been out for a month, but I just want him to know that I'm reading it out loud when I finally saw it. And I do know who wrote this because he told me after I posted about it, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is five stars. Cue Light in the Piazza Overture Music. A must listen for any Broadway fan. Not only is Matt Koplick and his roster of guest hosts incredibly knowledgeable about all things theater, the episodes never feel like a lecture. Each one genuinely feels like a conversation between friends filled with all the requisite shade, fangirling, and gut-busting humor. Amen. Amen. If that's not the history, boys, I don't know what is. (laughs) James, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Oh, um, I am on Instagram um, at James underscore Crichton. And um, my podcast is very much asleep for the last almost year at this point. But I'm hoping to release the final five episodes soon. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think that that will be the end of that journey. But um, I'm super proud and and asking people to go out and listen, if you haven't, to the original cast recording of Unknown Soldier, which came out uh, a few days ago in honor of what would have been Michael Friedman's 46th birthday. Um, So you could listen to that on all streaming platforms and whatnot. Um, We're super proud of it. As well you should be. If you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram at Matt Koplick, usual spelling. It's the only social media I have. I should get a website at some point. Just I I found it easier to reach out to people about coming on the pod if they have a website. Uh, And I was like, I should probably do the same courtesy. But then I'm like, who who would reach out to me? I don't know. Point is, if you want to contact me now or follow any of my journeys or any of my drunk movie nights at Matt Coplick on Instagram, I swear they're a lot of fun. Uh, Trying to think who we should have close us out. As you know, James, we always close out with a big Broadway diva. Oh, no, you know who we're doing? I already know. I know. I absolutely know. Because as I said, this is coming after Mamma Mia. And Kate Lumpkin and I spoke for a solid 10 minutes about the wonders of Tony Collette. And yet we did not close out with Tony Collette. We closed out with Cher because Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia, here we go again, came to Cher. We're like, it makes sense. But I've yet to close out with Tony Collette, and that's a travesty. Well, speaking of which, I was talking about Michael John Lacusa. Can we do a wild party song or no? of course first of all what else could there be i mean i could probably try to find one of her things from connie and carla but no we're doing we're going wild party i'll leave it to you to choose but i love all of her stuff in that i love all the stuff in that show me too completely anywho join us next week as we cover the boy who wanted to dance the ballet but was not allowed to dance the ballet billy elliott I want to dance the ballet, but dad, you can't dance the ballet, Billy.
That line is nowhere in the show, but I say it all the time. Uh, and yeah, have a great week, everybody. Thanks again, James, for joining us. Bye. Find him on all the things he said. Uh, and yeah, that's it. Have a great week. Take us away, Miss Tony Collette. Bye. Bye. Welcome to my party. You know what I need. Queenie's up for jazz and Queenie's up for anything tonight. I gotta get my engine smoking. I need it bad and God, I need it more. I need a lot of friendly stroking. There ain't no heaven and there ain't no hell. No turning back. Daddy lock the door. Welcome. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.